Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by A&E's Born This Way. Last season on the Emmy Award-winning show Born This Way, seven young adults with Down syndrome blew critics away. Co-creator of Homeland, Alex Gonzo, was inspired and said that Born This Way got him thinking about responsibility in TV and made him ask, what message should we be putting into the world? This season, the cast continues to defy expectations and set new standards for the world of television. Born This Way for your Emmy consideration. You can watch episodes on Tuesdays at 10 p.m. on A&E. Also for your Emmy consideration, Leah Romini's Scientology and the Aftermath, A&E's breakout unscripted hit of 2016. The Hollywood Reporter called it engrossing. The New York Daily News said the stories it tells are shocking and rife with sobering revelations and accusations. Now more ex-Scientologists are joining Leah to fight back. As Reality Blurred put it, that's the power of this kind of storytelling. Leah Romini, Scientology and the Aftermath for your Emmy consideration. Hey guys, I know you were listening to a podcast, but you should listen to another one. And it's called Binge Mode, and it features hosts Mallory Rubin and Jason Concepcion. We know those guys. I know those guys. We They're love great. those guys. Nobody knows more about Game of Thrones than those two. You think I'm kidding. I don't even know if George R. Martin knows as much about Game of Thrones as Mal and Jason. They are going to take you through every single episode this is so wild. of Game of Thrones. I cannot tell you what an incredible act of scholarship this podcast is. I haven't been more excited for a podcast since, I don't know, I can't even remember the last time you and I recorded a podcast. I always get excited. I can't wait to listen to, listen to Binge Mode. Everything I've heard from it is hysterical and thoughtful and interesting. These two are delightful. You've seen them in After the Thrones. They've both been on the watch at various points. Um, Mal and Jason's new podcast. It's Binge Mode. It's every episode of Game of Thrones. Subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I'm an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in the studio, he's an above average man. It's Andy Greenwald. That's how I describe myself. Andy, what's up, man? So much has happened since we last talked, Chris. I went to the cinema. And listen, I know we're going to talk about leftovers. I know you got a trailer you want to just break minds with. But I have to report something from the front lines. Sure. I went and saw Wonder Woman. Yeah, we're going to talk about it. A segment. Of our but show. I have to tell you something. Yeah. I went. Oh, you God. know, there was Is all this. this... Gonna be like, no, you're no. thinking of like what it's like to be around people? No. Okay. The opposite. You know, there was quite a kerfluffle about the all women screening yeah. of Wonder Woman. Yeah, yeah. What I want to know is. What about the all-nobody screening I attended this morning? So nobody was there, huh? Empty seats as far as the eye can see. Monday morning at 10.30. <laughs> it's a hip time to see is a it? I mean, I think that the thing with uh, L.A. is that you see a lot of people like hanging out at coffee shops during the day, and it's unclear. Like, Are they gainfully employed, or are they writing? You know what my in-laws like to say when they visit? Who are these people? Do they have jobs? <laughs> That's not, your in-laws aren't the only people who wonder that. Also, I'm sitting with them at the coffee shop <laughs> yeah, at 10.30 like, a.m. Interior so. coffee shop. <laughs> <laughs> Go on. Explain Los Angeles to our listeners before we get into no, it. No, it's not a take. I went yesterday to Wonder Woman at 11.30, and it was pretty well, well attended, but it was a Sunday, you know? Yeah, it was a weekend. But I saw a movie. This is the first, can I be honest with you yeah, guys? Yeah. I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to the people. This is the first film I've seen since Doctor Strange. So That's I assume crazy. Man. <laughs> I know. That's I know. so wild. So I assume that. Does your wife ever like take me to the movies? She would love to go to a movie. Oh, but we we don't do that. Why? Because you're too busy in deep studying prayer. Well, like... we can't bring the the little one. 
you know, we have we have we have the two, so we have the baby one that can't she's come to the She's almost movies. as old as the kid in Logan now. <laughs> she's she definitely has the attitude. <laughs> um but also, here's the here's the bigger one. Huh. We are we, we get a babysitter. So this is such a fascinating podcast. We get the, a babysitter so infrequently that the the we don't want to burn those free those few hours with a movie that might burn us. Yeah, I mean, and there's so many places to go in Los Angeles where it's small plates. The chef kind of just courses it out Explains as it happens. The menu, and you know, it's like we like to use a lot of local do, products, and do you it's, know, it's, it's, it's shared. Do you so know how it, much <laughs> time I would waste because every restaurant we go to? I mean, we've only lived here nine months. Where the where the waiter says, um, "Have you dined with us before?" I can't lie. I always, I'm always honest with servers, and I say no. And then we get the 20 minute spiel, and that that those 20 minutes cost. How do you feel about coursing? The state of coursing. Um, I think it's a good idea in theory. I think it is not uh, generally done correctly. Right. Right. Not like when you go to an Italian place that's like shared plates, and they bring you the cacio e pepe before the salad. Nah. First of all, you should always be able to split an order of pasta. Sure. That's what it's for. Yeah. But no, we we get very little of that. Actually, I kind of like to have my own pasta. No, no, I'm not saying if you if you want to have your own pasta, God be with you. Carb up, my man. <laughs> but if you're at a restaurant where there's some nice secondi, if you will, <laughs> then you should be able to say like, you know, let, let's let's split that. Let's split the facility. Yeah, I don't think. The, I mean, they're always down to have give you another friggin' plate that they then clear like immediately. I don't know. This, this sounds like this podcast. I like that we are actively. Proving to people they should not listen to our takes on millennial blockbuster entertainment. I do want to talk. Speaking of of of, uh, of blockbuster entertainment, yeah. you know, I know that the Mummy is coming out soon. That's like another Tom Cruise blockbuster yeah. for summer, and he's had a couple the last few years. Um, I think you know it was it, you know, there was two Jack Reachers, there was Rogue Nation. Are you wait? Are we are we doing the slow build up now to the Tom Cruise mm-hmm. trailer? Let's just tell people we're going to talk Wonder Woman. We're going to talk about the leftovers finale and all that came with it. I'm excited to talk about that. I just want to let people know. People, those are those are the big ticket items. Because I just imagine Tom Cruise. You know, he does, he's done these two Jack Reacher movies. He did. <laughs> and what what more does he have to give us? At yeah, this point? and he's he's got one. Yeah, Rogue Nation. He's got another Rogue one Nish. in the in the. He's no ti- no title announced for Mission Six yet. May, I bet you it's MI Six. That just sounds good. Yeah, but Ghost Prote and Rogue Nation are <laughs> dope ass subtitles. Ghost Prote is pretty pretty tight. Um, also good movies. But, you know, it's been a while since Tom Cruise has, I wouldn't want to say tried, because if there's one thing you can't say about Tom Cruise is that he doesn't leave it all on the field. That's right. And sometimes that means nearly leaving his carcass on the field when he straps himself to a B-52 bomber in, is that Ghost Prody? America. Oh, no, it's Rogue Nation. Tom Cruise. Because in Ghost Prody, he climbs the Dubai skyscraper. Tom Cruise is going to die on the set of a film. Yeah. Like, but, you know, if you die doing what you love, it's like you didn't work that doesn't work. But <laughs> I just think people should know that. When you like do he, what you love, it's not work. Right. And, and if you, you die doing what you love, are you just, really dead? Let's call Damon Lindelof and find out. Right. But what you're saying is there's a trailer for a new movie. Yeah. American he seems made, to be acting. Yeah. And it seems like he's back. It is basically if you took Wolf of Wall Street mm-hmm. and then started watching that and we're like, this is pretty good. But what I really want to do mm-hmm. is watch Narcos! <laughs> Um, yeah, that's 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 accurate. It's literally like it's like someone was watching Narcos and they were like, Boyd Holbrook's pretty good in this, but what if it was Tom Cruise? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean this character is on Narcos. Yeah, do you remember? It, it's Barry Seal, the famous, infamous uh, cocaine cowboy pilot, dope ass name. Yeah, and he was working for various government agencies. 
uh, on and off the books, I, and then wound up working with the Medellin cartel. This is one of those trailers, Chris. Now, guys, I, you know, I, I came in here. I came from the theater. I've had a, it's, I got a case of the Mondays. Mm-hmm. I can be honest with her. I feel like I'm being very confessional today. And uh, I walked in here, and you just demanded that I watch something. You changed my day around. Well, because I really, I like Tom Cruise movies, yeah. and it's been a minute since I felt like in the beginning part of this decade or the beginning part of the century, rather. Tom Cruise was, we forget, it was quite a run for him from, say, Minority Report, War of the Worlds, up to Valkyrie. And I felt like I wrote you about this You could just go back four more years and put Jerry Maguire in Oh, mix. yeah. I mean, the 90s Tom Cruise is like, right. that goes in but a then box. But he, he was doing pretty th- well. That box goes in the Raiders of Lost Ark warehouse. But, I, you know, late, late period Tom Cruise, post night and day. But I actually think it really comes down to Valkyrie, because Valkyrie was a movie that had higher aspirations, given the fact that Kenneth Branagh was in it. Um, Although Brano's having himself a 2017. Oh my God, Poirot and Dunkirk. Imagine Poirot. <laughs> a lot to talk about. Um, it had a, it had higher aspirations, but it had the rollout of a Tom Cruise blockbuster. I don't know if you remember, but it just mm-hmm. felt like they were like Valkyrie. What if what, you know? And it's like even though Valkyrie came with the problem, a lot of these historical dramas come with, which is that we know the ending didn't work. Also, took the Wonder Woman path of if they speak English in a slight German accent. They're speaking but German. I want to talk about the Wonder Woman accents. <laughs> Trust me. Okay. Anyway, American Made, it looks like, I, I really like Doug Lyman movies, Edge of Tomorrow, Born Identity, Go, Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Um, obviously, just like, he yep. has a, an ability to make very exciting but very unique blockbusters. Doug Lyman makes good movies. Yes. You hear it stories sounds like about- Doug Lyman might be a bit of a pain in the ass to work yeah, for. No, all the stories about working on these movies, like how there was no movie, how he <laughs> shot nine movies yeah. and found the movie. Like it all sounds yeah. fucking crazy. But maybe there aren't that many people that do this that go from that crazy process to making good movies. And I think you're exactly right. What's weird is that he was good at making movies for a while. I mean, Swingers was his first movie. Doug Lyman. Doug yeah. Lyman. But he does seem to have found a way to make to work in the blockbuster economy. And still be a talented and director still, and make compelling he's, movies. He's, Edge of Tomorrow is still probably the best blockbuster from the last few years. Yeah, it's a and terrific uh, movie. He he has unlocked a kind of um, when he works with Cruz. I think he gets the best out of him while still doing like a the the, the idea of repeatedly killing Tom Cruise in a movie. Yeah. It was just so hilarious to watch. So Lyman, I think, gets Cruz and he gets the conversation around Cruz. And, and so I'm excited for this. Let me say one more thing. Great trailer. This is the kind of movie I wish they always made movies like this. This is just it's a ton of fun. But I think the thing to remember in the Tom Cruise economy, uh, y- you don't make a Tom Cruise movie. Tom Cruise and the movie make you. Yes. And, you know, this is not a industry secret. This is not like insider trading. Tom Cruise is still one of the most powerful people in this industry. And he chooses his projects so that he can choose the projects. Mm-hmm. You know, he has, I think, you know, he has like final decision over almost anything. He and he and all actors on that level will only try if they feel inspired to or if they trust and respect the person in charge of the movie. That's not pretty, but that's true. So, you know, I think you can you can basically look at his filmography and decide who he wanted to try for and who he didn't. And it's it's exciting just watching this trailer because it looks like he's trying. Yeah, I think it, it's been so you get movies. The a lot, there's a class of guys. There's a generation of guys who are all in their fifties, early fifties to late fifties. Uh, Hanks, Cruz, Washington who were the biggest movie stars in the world for you and me growing up, and have all had, I think, difficult ex- difficult late periods where they're trying to understand where they are in the firmament. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Denzel makes, he'll make Fences, but then he'll make 
Equalizer and Magnificent Seven as well. All of them, and I find Denzel movies generally like fairly entertaining, no matter well, what. Because but, Denzel found, like Tom Cruise, he's found they're the two movies that he can make. He has the two characters he can play. Let's say because he's always a movie star, he's always Denzel, right? But one of the characters, and it works for him, is like in a Tony Scott movie shooting everybody. Yes. Even if Tony Scott didn't make it. Right. And then the other one is when he is, for lack of a better word, trying in yeah. a different way. And when he's Cruz, going when he's going for the best actor belt. Cruz yeah. has that that mode too where he's either making a Mission Impossible movie and literally dying on screen or he's willing to play ball a little yes. bit. And that and doesn't always work for him. Of Cruz, Hanks and Washington, I think Cruz has had the longest layoff of of really going for it. You know, and I think in our minds we think of him as this guy who split the atom between box office success and if not critically lauded at least critically approved material like a few good men and obviously he was great in magnolia you know trying things like vanilla sky and eyes wide shut you know mm-hmm. which were various levels of success um interview with a vampire yeah i mean so he's it's it's fun to, it's nice it's nice to have him back doing material that isn't like pretty superficial i'm glad we had this conversation because listen i go to movies now so i am all in and engaged let's just keep talking movies let's keep talking blockbusters i love it let's talk about wonder woman I, it's sean fantasy lit a fire under me last week coming in on my turf talking about movies wonder woman I can talk about movies too let's set it up a little bit because i think that for as much as we're going to talk about the movie we're also going to talk about mm-hmm. dc and warner brothers and the fact that you know this has been a topic oh, of conversation I thought you for meant us. we were also going to talk about fourth wave feminism <laughs> Um. <laughs> Do you feel like Senator Ben Sass right now? <laughs> is, that, is that what's up? No, no, no. I, I think that there are a lot of lessons to be learned from Wonder Woman. That's why I like to go to the movies. And this is this is the lesson that I, I know now more so this year and 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 after being in Los Angeles for 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 the five years I've been here, and meeting people who work on movies even in like the in just kind of like tangential ways you're connected you mean i just understand a little bit better now than i did say 10 years ago about how hard it is to make a good movie yeah and everybody and most people who make movies having the best intentions when they go into the project Mm -hmm. and yes there are some that are just like clearly stupid from the outset like the emoji movie yeah but then there are like i don't know we we were joking about jack reacher like jack reacher had good part there were good parts of jack reacher and you could see i, I kind of liked there it. was some intention to make like a really hard-boiled 70s thriller and it just kind of got you know jumbled up it in got the process Tom cruised. yeah um dc has had this issue where there were good ideas underneath a lot of these um zack snyder helmed mm-hmm. or you know, the, since the post Nolan DC universe, there were a lot of pretty good ideas bubbling around in there, and they just got lost in in a variety of different um, mud pits. And you know, you think about those DC movies, and a lot of people, I think, I, I personally always just think of like darkness and mm-hmm. a lack of clarity and a lack of energy and verve and zip. And um, Wonder Woman fixed a lot of that. Yeah. I thought. I thought like. It just really from the beginning when it's like a lovely sunny Greek island to through the World War One stuff up up until like I think the last act. Mm-hmm. It's just like really zips along. It does and has a lot of charm and a lot of energy and basically manages to be dark and about human error, but also like maintain that say that thing where you're like superheroes are supposed to be objects of idealism. Yeah, affirmative object, you know, affirmative character. Even before we get into the specifics of of this movie, what you just said touched off something that I wanted to to mention, which is it's 
it's very interesting to note that um, two of the comic book movies that have been considered the most successful um, across the board have been the period pieces. Um, and I mean the first Captain America and this Wonder Woman movie. And it's interesting because basically what these movies have done is restored the characters not exactly to the era in which they were invented. Captain America, yes, accurately, was a World War II hero. Wonder Woman was not created in World War I. Right. But in some ways, the spirit that birthed them is present in those movies, and they somehow make more sense. Um, I thought that was sort of interesting, and I wonder if that's something to explore more in the future of these movies, because as they keep pushing forward you know, more into the, the present day or even beyond, there's something bumpier about it, about these idealistic figures and then making them coarser or darker to yeah. fit the times. and I think that the Snyder movies had a very uneasy relationship to reality, and I don't just mean that like, can someone jump yeah. from there to there, but... Guess Real what? World they events. can, and in slow motion. Yeah, but I think that there was a, some pretty well-founded right. negative reaction to the imp- implications of like uh, Metropolis being leveled. The, the 9-11 yeah, aspects the 9/11. of it. Yeah, the 9-11. And I have the same issue. I, I, I feel the same way about some of the Marvel stuff where no Marvel movie can seemingly come off without a spaceship crashing into the Washington Monument. Rare or something. city yeah. being destroyed. Um, but... You know, they by grounding this character Wonder Woman in, um, a, like a, a very clear narrative mm-hmm. of like human, like but but also far enough away from what we are now mm-hmm. that like you can kind of almost look at it like in in the same idealistic way mm-hmm. of normal people standing up for to fight something yeah. bigger than them. It, the movie is a success, and and all and all by all metrics, it is clearly a financial success. It's a success. Uh, in terms of changing perceptions for female-fronted superhero movies and blockbusters, female-directed superhero mm-hmm. movies and blockbusters, shouts to Patty Jenkins, um, it works. And 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 I think that what you're speaking to first and foremost is that it it remarkably this is of all those things. Those are all difficult things to do, but to reframe the DC cinematic universe and make it feel like something appealing and potentially successful is the most impressive to me because we've slagged on it for years. And, you know, I, a couple months ago, I think I talked, uh, I mentioned on the podcast that I had done an event with um, Richard Donner, director of Superman, mm-hmm. and Jeff Johns, who's a comic book writer, turned basically the he- de facto head of the DC Cinematic Universe. And um, Jeff Johns had worked for for Dick Donner for many years. They were very close. And I'd met Jeff before, and I knew that what he loved and his love for DC growing up was the way I felt about Marvel. And like, he gets it. You know what I mean? For, mm-hmm. I never really understood the appeal of DC heroes, but he, he does and he did. And apparently he does in all the comic books that he writes for them. And so I tried to sort of gently ask, like, well, why don't the movies do that? And he never criticized Zack Snyder, certainly. And he never said anything negative about the movies that existed. But he did say he felt that Wonder Woman was a turning point. And he basically, and, and the example he gave me off the record at the time was the no one can cross no man's land. Well, a woman can cross no man's land. And it's just like, well, that's, that's pretty good. Like, that's just a screenwritery. Yeah. That's pretty good. But also, you know, taking the first word of the superhero and making it the, the, the linchpin of the movie, which is a sense of wonder. Um, I was very impressed that they could do it. It's it, it suffused with a deep love of character and of the character's history and stature. But also, um, it's not stodgy in that way in terms of its reverence for her. It kept something that I didn't know was possible in DC, in the DC universe, which is um, the fish out of water type thing. Mm-hmm. There is Peter Parkery elements of Wonder Woman. She's the most she's a god. Yeah, that she finds like, out in the movie, but she doesn't know what a watch. Yeah, is. Yeah, and she's like, "This ice cream cone's great." You yeah, know, like, and, I've never and had this before. the ice cream cone scene 
is a terrific scene. It's funny. We last week I, when I was talking to you about Castle Rock movies, the the thing you mentioned, Castle Rock, the the studio from yeah, the nineties yeah. that made some of the best movies of the nineties, headed by Rob Reiner and Alan Horn. The scene you mentioned was the ice cream cone scene in In the Line of Fire. Most people remember the glass elevators, right, or whatever. But right. you were saying that that movie made time for Clint Eastwood and Rene Russo to eat an ice cream cone. Yeah, there was actually, I, I, and way after you left, I thought about the bohemian beer scene on on the rooftop in Shawshank, which was another. Yeah, there, there's G- give give him a second. Like, yeah, there's no just, time in these movies. And that, for anything. that happens again. Like the, I think the movie peaks honestly at um, the entire Veld sequence of yes. Wonder Woman, where from the approach, which is obviously, you know, re- quite sad and and. Um, the insistent her her like wanting to help everybody mm-hmm. she sees it really put the a lot of the stuff that like Superman dealt with in these very like sort of mm-hmm. operatic like ways it just gave it like a very economical like she's gonna see a bunch of people and she's gonna want to help all of them and she, mm-hmm. ca- she probably could have helped some of them immediately but mm-hmm. Chris Pine is saying like no there's like this larger thing that yeah. we have to conquer yeah um and then the the trench charge and actually the taking of the town and then. The dance sequence and the, the allowing them to have this yes. like celebration and the Ewan Bremner character singing and like them him teaching her how to dance and like the snow. It's like just really I think if you and I are sounding a little bit more tempered, it's probably I'm speaking for you here. But I know for me and I've talked about this before, like I do think I'm aging out of this a little bit. Yeah. I, and the, I so it's like the, I'm just aging out of like the kind of connection that you can have to these movies. And it's, frankly, it's been like. 12, 14, however long it's been of years where this has been the dominant sort of lingua franca of Hollywood. So I'm just getting a little too old for this shit, but that's not, that doesn't dampen my connection to it. I I agree. And and I wanted to talk about that scene too, that when everything quiets down for a minute before the build up to the big finale. And we should also say, um, hopefully we'll get a chance to talk to him soon, but the screenwriter of this movie is an old friend, Alan Heinberg, who I can't say enough about him as a as a guy and as a writer but also he loves this character i mean the first thing i I met him at comic-con in 2004 he loves wonder woman and so for for someone who truly loves and gets the character to be able to do this and then have the room to function and pull off those scenes is a marvel that bad choice of words perhaps it's a wonder (laughs) um but what i wanted to say was about that scene so there's the, the the dance scene in the town and the snow is falling and and um uh, the character Sammy was a great character, great performance, gives them beers. There's a moment in that dialogue where I was just like, okay, this is good. This is just good yeah. filmmaking, and it's great performances, and it's building on what we came before. And there's a little bit, maybe I'm saying this because I watched this with my family over the weekend, but there's almost like a little bit of Roman Holiday. It's one of my favorite movies, and there's a little bit of Roman Holiday in this, where it's like they're, she's learning about a world, and we already know that they're not, there's not going to be enough time, for whatever reason. Yeah. And then she has to punch the god of war the next day and so it's just for me the thing that i can't get over it's not just that we're getting too old for it which is probably true i'm still having trouble even after all these years accepting that the only place for a roman holiday type moment is within the superstructure of one of these movies yeah I, so that, I, and so I feel that, the same way about about the only way Patty Jenkins can make a World War right. One movie is if it's about Wonder Woman. So, so yeah. right. So that's the maybe that maybe there's some analogy to be made between like him wanting to take the big picture and her wanting to save everyone. But you know, in the big picture, it's a success for that reason that we got those moments, we got those scenes. But you know, I still wish we could just make a, a quieter movie. That said, throw everything away for a second. Gal Gadot is great. She's great. I did not see Batman v Superman. I apologize to the world, but not really. I don't care. She's great. I had no idea. She's completely alive on screen. She's fun to watch. She's funny. Um, 
It's, she carried the movie. Chris Pine really is terrific. We joked about giving him too much credit, but yeah, he, they over they probably overpaid for Robin Wright and David Thewlis. And, yo, yeah, Robin Wright. This is the role <laughs> she was born to play. Robin Wright was crazy dope for those few first few scenes. Like it's just this weird thing of like good and bad, and maybe that's that's okay. Like I I hate the slow down bullet time bullshit. I hate the sat- desaturated color palette. But those opening sequences, as you're talking about on the island, which is just com- which is a completely female society, were very moving in a way. Like it was, we have not seen that. Yeah, we have not seen, and it's not, and not just that they were fighting on the battlefield in that way, which is it worthy of its own podcast and discussion and more. Um, it's that when. Uh, when the goddess Connie Nielsen, who's pretty much literally a goddess in this movie, leads Diana into the room with the god killer, blah, 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 the attendants, you know, people are always, in movies like this, people are always leading um, uh, novices into rooms guarded by other people. The guards were women, like these little things, these little background parts. And that felt different, and that gave it a freshness. Um, also, casting a nearly 60-year-old um, British man as the god of war, Inspired. Yeah. Thulis is having a year, by the way. Thulis is getting getting money. Um, God bless the older British actor like Kenneth Branagh, like David Thulis, who can be so good. They can just sit a couple decades out and then just come roaring back. I think that the big thing I would take away from this movie is also that DC sort of tried to jumpstart and skip the first five to seven years of this whole thing by putting everybody together as fast as possible. So they did Mm -hmm. one Superman movie. Mm -hmm ups and downs of that and then it was like batman versus superman but with wonder woman mm-hmm. suicide squad with 90 people mm-hmm. then they announced and even had a teaser for justice league before i think i don't know if before wonder woman they but they definitely s- even like kind of marketed justice league a little harder than wonder they woman did seem to be for a looking while. past this for yeah. a while and if i would take anything from the success of this film and doing incredibly well at the box office is that it's okay to just tell one story really well and it's okay for, I mean, I, I think I had a lot of trepidation going into this because I just can't do this many more origin stories. Mm-hmm. But the origin part of Wonder Woman on the island is directly connected to everything that happens for the rest of the movie. It's not like, here's the part where Clark is a baby on Krypton and there's a war between these aliens and then the planet explodes, and then 30 years later, he's on a boat in Nova Scotia, and then Zod comes back. It's She literally goes off this beach and goes into the war, and like they wake up, and they're in London, and that, that's it. And I thought that the connective tissue was very strong, and I thought that even though the last act and having you know Thulis just become a scrap metal master blaster god... That was tough. Yeah, and, and it's just like, you must join me, yeah. and all that shit. It's like, whatever, but... The first two-thirds of this movie are really, really tight. Um, I also think it's worth saying no one should. there should be no downplaying of the significance of a, again, of a female-starring, female-focused, female-directed uh, action movie dominating at the box office. But the, if there is a—if if I could just put on my, my slate 538-whatever hat, I do think there's one underexplored aspect of this, which you alluded to, which is people want to feel safe that they're going to have an enclosed experience in the movie theater. I think the connective TV, TVization of movies, it's working, it's selling tickets, but I think it's being overvalued. I think that, you know, even for me, having not watched the other DC movies, knowing, and I, I did do enough reading to know this was going to happen, having the beginning five minutes be in the present day, I was so much more comfortable once we went to the yeah. past because yeah. I knew we were getting an enclosed story. Mm-hmm. And that's why the first Captain America was successful as well. You know, it, 
it, it doesn't feel like an obligation. It's the same feeling that I think people are beginning to back, backlash against. Like, well, I'd love to watch your TV show, but I don't know if I have 12 hours in me this weekend to, to binge it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Let's all take a breath and tell one story well before we tell all the stories. Yeah. All right. Let's take a uh, quick break here from our sponsors, and then we'll talk about the end of the leftover story. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Casper Mattress. Casper is an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. Supportive memory foams create an award-winning sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. I love my Casper. You know, I need my eight hours, Andy. Sink. It's like really... I love it. It's important to me. It's not beauty sleep. It's brain sleep. How many hours do you get? I try to get eight. No wonder you look fresh. I try to go 11 to 7. 11 to 7. But it's usually like 11.30 to 7.30. Don't, don't tell Sean Fantasy. Try Casper for 100 nights, risk-free, in your own home. And if you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. Casper understands the importance of truly sleeping on a mattress before you commit. This is one of the biggest things with mattress buying. It's why I love this, like, I love Casper because it's like you go to the mattress store, they hound you around the store, they hound you around the, uh, the, 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 the exhibition space or whatever they call it, the floor. Right, the exhibition hall. Yeah. Where, where do you mattress shop? Sleep, and they, they're like, "Oh, you like it? You like it? You gotta buy it." You know, and you're like, you just get to lie it up for like thirty seconds, and you're just sort of like, "I guess I'll 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 spend most of my sleeping life on this you thing." You ever had a mattress salesman lie down next to you? No, have you? No. You know who doesn't do that? Casper. And they also have free shipping and returns to the U.S. and Canada with over 20,000 reviews and an average of 4.8 stars. It's quickly becoming the internet's favorite mattress. Get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting www.casper.com watch and use offer code watch. Terms and conditions apply. Today's episode of The Watch is also brought to you by Black Tux. There are only so many opportunities in life to wear a tux. This is true. So when your big day or special event rolls around this spring, just how about you look as great as you feel? With suits from theblacktux.com, the high-quality rental suits and tuxedos are delivered straight to your doorstep, and the Black Tux gives you a new way to rent. Plus, with their free home try-on, you can see the fit, feel the quality, months before your event. And the best part is, it's completely done online. Nobody's nobody's tugging at you. Nobody's measuring you. Theblacktux.com lets you create your look or choose from a ton of stylist-selected outfits. Suits like these usually retail for $1,200, but at the Black Tux, they start at $95. If you have any questions or issues, their customer care team has your back. There are a bunch of experts over there. Every step of the way, they got you. After ordering your suit, it will arrive 14 days before your event, and if anything is less than perfect, the Black Tux will send you a free replacement right away. When it's over, you drop that bad boy back in the rental box and you put it in the mail and it goes back to black tux and the, the deal is done always be closing shipping is free both ways how easy is that stand out at your event for all the right reasons with the black tux to get twenty dollars off your purchase visit the slash bspn that's the slash bspn for 20 bucks off your purchase okay andy we are back let's talk a little bit about the series finale of the leftovers which aired last night on the home box office channel did uh you go first because i feel like I, I sucked a lot of the air out of the room for wonder woman so i want to pass the rock um i am incredibly grateful to the show i just big picture it the experience of watching the show over the last three years has been truly unique and amazing for me i i in retrospect i love how much I hated it because then I could come to appreciate it. And that, that transition alone highlights what I love about TV. You, that's not really possible in movies because it's, you know, theoretically it's just one, one experience. Um, it 
went places other shows didn't. It took risks other shows never would. Um, and in a way, it felt like a perfect closure to me because my experience watching the finale, I watched it last night, um, mirrored my experience with the show in general, which is I started watching it and I was, um, I was curious. I was affected by it. I started to become um, suspicious. I started to disconnect and get almost actively annoyed. And then in this great rush of uh, emotion, I did a 180 and I was incredibly moved and gratified and satisfied with this as a finale um, for any number of reasons. But to, to specifically to track what I'm talking about, um, it's weird. The, the Nora Matt stuff at the beginning is going to be almost overlooked because of everything that happened later, but that was just some exceptional writing and acting in and of itself. Um, but the Kevin showing up and lying, basically, but at the time acting like he had never seen her and all those other things didn't happen, brought back these feelings of, of course, and this I think is intentional because he was exercising demons, the sideways universe season of Lost, are we in an alternate dimension? Where are we? But also this feeling of that I remember very much from the first season of Leftovers is I don't want to play. You know, you know when someone's just like, come on, come on, joke around with me or come on, play a game. Like someone starts throwing a football at you or whatever. Like whether someone wants to play a game or a board game or do a bit and you just kind of don't want to. That was how I felt about the first season of the Leftovers. And I felt that during that section keenly. And it was bringing it all back. During the, the section. During the part where Kevin was pretending that- into the wedding and yeah. yeah. All the things around it were bespoke and elegant and clever, like the idea of this scapegoat, literally, with the beads. I mean, all these little details. But I just wasn't feeling it. And then uh, we get the story and where Nora tells him what happened or what didn't happen. And I thought that was truly astonishing because all you can really, you know, I've said this before, the finales of TV shows are when they tell you what they are. Because a, a fiction on top of the fiction can exist when we watch one of these series for a long time where the creator thinks they're telling one story, but you maybe are watching it for a different reason. You know, Emily Nussbaum called pe- some people bad fans of Breaking Bad because they thought they were watching an epic about a, like a, like a, this is fucking awesome epic about a criminal. When, in fact, it was kind of a repudiation of what Walter White became. And that was revealed in the finale. Um, finales are about to show the creator, you know, they're what the, they, they show you what the creator wanted to say. And sometimes that leaves you feeling shocked or surprised or, you know, disconnected from the, the work you were seeing. What that moment showed me was the very best parts of the show were seen and understood by the people making it. This was a show about belief and the impossibility of belief, but also the necessity of belief in order to forge connections outside of ourselves. And so the fact that they had this idea of this shadow world which is so disturbing, you know, it, it's so haunting. It made me think of Jeff Vandermeer, the author we had on the other week, and, yeah. and, and Annihilation and the Southern Reach trilogy. All of the horror that went unsaid in this story, like the baby from the series premiere, just lying alone crying in a parking lot in a phantom dimension, like all of the death that may have come just from that, the, the airline pilots who disappeared, you know, when 98% of the world vanished and the planes went down. I mean, it's just impossible, but it's impossible to imagine, but we were allowed to imagine it. And then all of that, just to build up to her, and only Carrie Coon could have pulled this off of many of the many actors on TV. For all of it to be told, to be to be, we were told about it. We were not shown it. It ultimately doesn't matter if it was true. If your version of the leftovers is it was true, great. If it wasn't, great. And that's what the show was, because what it was really about more than anything else was 
despite all the lies and the misery and tragedy and um, misfortune and uh, uh, sex boats, this was a show about these people reaching for each other and holding hands. I and think it, it worked. I think it became about that. Yeah. Oh, um, I, uh, yeah. I would say that I uh, have a lot of admiration for this show, but that my appreciation or my level of my appreciation for the last few episodes, the Laurie episode, the, mm-hmm. the international uh, assassin. The, Sequel. The, the most powerful man in the world and his identical yeah, twin brother. and the finale were a little bit tempered. Mm-hmm. And I do think that it's interesting to read a lot. You know, and Damon talked to us on Thursday, and he was just like, don't click. You know, he was like, this is your show. Don't let me tell you how to feel about it. And so I, I say this with, with like a little bit of trepidation because... I probably should follow his advice. And you know he's listening. <laughs> but I think that there was something about the second season and a little bit about the beginning of the first season that made me... It's not about what I should or shouldn't be paying attention to because I think that really is where viewers make up their mind. You show people all these things and you can't really control what parts of a show people are interested in. And that's why you see some shows change course. And you see some shows emphasize different characters or change like Parks and Rec changing the kind of DNA of Leslie in the second season or whatever. Make her like a little bit. Recalibrating. Yeah, recalibrating. And I think The Leftovers did that too. I mean, it was obviously a very um, morose show in the first season. Punishing, some might even say. And then came to life, (laughs) to use a not a very Leftovers appropriate term, in the second season. And... um. It didn't leave me with unanswered questions as much as I think maybe I was just looking in a different part of the show than the oh, so, the So this came were. true to you. This what I was saying is was accurate to you too. There was a, there was a part of the show that was more interesting to you that was not being paid attention yeah, to. Yeah, a little bit. And I think that as the show, for me, the second season, the brilliance of the second season had to do somewhat with the widening of the scope in terms of the characters mm-hmm. and the way that uh, it started to talk about how these. This departure kind of brought a new era of the unexplainable to the world mm-hmm. and how that affected multiple people. And I I really liked the way that Kevin and Nora fit into a collection of characters rather than... I think that as the season, the third season went down, it became like Kevin and... Kevin, no, it's Kevin and Nora's love story. That was actually not... If you would ask me to do a blind taste test on what this show was about for me, I don't think I would have said Kevin and Nora's love story. I completely agree with you about that. That was when I... I'm glad you brought that up because that was the other element of when I started to go a little sour in the finale was the idea of this one true love story being the story. Mm -hmm. Um, Other shows have have tripped down that as well. I mean, Homeland is an example, a very different show, but one where I just don't, don't... Not only do I not buy the love story as essential, but I just didn't see it coming as the essential thing. Um... I, I think that it worked for me in the end because what it was a because the show reminded me something that had always been there that I had trouble sometimes seeing through whether it was uh, you know fault on the fault of the creators or in the fault of me watching it or whatever, but you know this idea of the departure what it really did to these characters all of them was in some ways confirm their worst fears about themselves because everyone makes everything about themselves and that's one of the brilliant things that the show really highlighted when when Matt Jameson meets God in quotes and then he just talks about himself. Mm-hmm. Um 
so that remember when, and we were reminded of it last night, when the moment Nora lost her family was a very unmotherly moment when she screamed at her kids because they spilled juice on the cell phone and mm-hmm. then they were gone. And in every moment, anyone, in any one of us, when we do something like that towards someone we love, we're like, oh, we don't deserve them. We're going to be punished for that. On some level, we think that. And she was. You know, Kevin never thought he was good at family. And then it all blew up in his face. So the idea of these broken people just reaching out across, to each other in a way, to me, was more about... Um, making selfish choice it's almost that in and of itself is a selfish choice kevin went to australia every year for 20 for 15 years trying to find her and that's as much about him as it is about her um so i was able to watch it through the prism of their own individual journeys and then they were the other ones waiting on the, they were waiting for each other sort of to reach out you know it wasn't just about yeah. love as romantic love but there were there were flaws and i don't want to pretend that there were no, no, I, and i i, I, I think I, that one, it, what it is is that you know i often think about this in terms of like just life in general you know, where you think about you and I are sitting at this table and when, when this podcast is over, you're going to leave and the camera is going to follow you. But when I go back to the office, the camera is going to follow me, you know, and that. And the, but but only for B-roll from my show. Yeah, right? right. I mean, I'm just trying to like add context and just maybe mm-hmm. like get, kind of prop you up a little bit. But, you know, the idea is basically that we're going to be the, the A plot of our stories wherever we go mm-hmm. for the rest of the day. And, um, I guess Kevin and Nora weren't necessarily the A-plot for me in this show. I, I think that I, I will admit to being very interested in the mechanics and narrative about the departure, about the Guilty Remnant, mm-hmm. about the government agency that sprung out, out of the departure. Although that is the five, six, seven season version of the show. Uh, I'm sure it is. Once they realize I I'm sure it is, yeah. I mean, I think that I think ultimately it was really interesting to listen to Nora's monologue. It's even much more interesting to think about whether it's true. But, you know, we, we, and we can get into that. But she essentially tells the story of Lost from the perspective of people who didn't get on the plane. Yeah. You know, she talks about what it was like, the loneliness of that other place, you know. Um, and we watch, yeah, I think we all want our lives to feel magical and important. And, and that we're in the right place. Yeah, and it's... In some ways, it's it's interesting because it's like, you know, if you survived the departure, wouldn't you feel in some ways saved, you know? And yeah. none of these people felt saved. They all felt damned to some extent. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I think that for me, it, it, obviously not most television doesn't make you have these kinds of questions. And that's that's a testament to what Damon was doing and, and what those the folks who were writing the show did. And I think at the end, you know, it was, it was very interesting to read some of the stuff. And obviously, I mean, you're listening to this, so you, you care about it. But if you don't want to know, you should stop. But, you know, Damon talks in the Vulture piece that uh, Boris Kalchika did uh, about the end of this the series. Yeah. About gonna, wanting about to, to film bring this up. the other world. Yeah. You I, know, and that and that basically what was even more fascinating is that in the Justin Threw interview today on Vulture, they ask him about Nora's speech. And he his he, at one point, his response is like, yeah, if you believe it. If you believe mm-hmm. Nora's story. And frankly, it's like you get to the end of this series and you don't... Kevin and Nora are pretty cruel to, cruel to each other. And I'm not sure that she's telling the truth. Well, a couple things. Um, I want to talk about that vulture piece. Uh, you know, the lying is, is essential to this episode. I mean, the nun clearly has sex with the guy. And yeah. she's like, no, I didn't. Right. Um, you know, so I, I think that that's right there. In terms of the... the, the flaws that I was going to mention, I, I think that they needed more episodes this season. I've never argued that. And I, 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 next time we talk to Damon, let's ask him about it. But 
you know, I, I, I love that when people are like, let's just bang it out in six. You know, it's better. I think stories, especially on TV, is generally better served by just packing it rather than stretching it. But the, the biggest flaw for me this season came much earlier. The weakest episode for me was Good Day Melbourne when they broke up. I didn't buy that turn. It came, obviously it was all simmering under the surface and all the things they expressed were there written right into the DNA of the characters, but it seemed very sudden and it felt like it had to happen for whatever was going to happen next. So you, when you mentioned them being cruel to each other, I was thinking that as maybe the original sin for whatever flaws I felt when they got back together as this one true pairing mm-hmm. later on. Um, to your other point, this is truly unique and worth mentioning what they did let New York Magazine do. No show has ever done this. No show has ever let a writer into the collaborative creative process to this degree. So they let Boris, they didn't let him in the room in the room. They let him interview everyone who was in the room. And they let him hang out on set in Australia. And they let him uh, talk to everyone afterwards and in the post, post-production. Um, reading this now, having been in three writers' rooms as a participant myself, it was shocking. It almost like, it, it felt like... Jack uh, Reacher... Jack Reacher, Jack Reacher, never go back. Two, yeah. and then the as yet unreleased <laughs> Jack Reacher three. Keep reaching, keep never stop reaching. Um, but it felt almost like sacrilegious because you know there's only when people say like, okay, so I worked on Legion. Like whose idea was whatever? It was Noah's idea. It doesn't matter. It filters through Noah. It was his show. Mm-hmm. That's how it works. And the other thing about that is honestly, most of the time I don't remember whose idea it was because it's this weird give and take thing. Um, Damon has been so generous, more generous than most, uh, not, not certainly not all, but than a lot of people in being out there being like, na- last week he named every person in the writer's room with yeah. us, you know, like, uh, like Arya Stark naming her enemies and except literally the opposite. He let them all shine in this to a degree that was really fascinating and, and I think generous, but more than anything else, the point that you're talking about was an incredible revelation of his, of his instincts, good and bad, right? Because in this piece, and you guys should all read it, but he says that he came up, he had come up with the idea of the other shadow universe, basically, in the pilot, and had asked Peter Berg to maybe film the disappearing baby from the disappearing baby's perspective, just in case he decided to end the show that way. And they ended up not having time. But that is a, like I said, haunting, really good idea. I mean, that's a million-dollar idea for anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he wanted to show it. And he wanted to show his work and answer questions when the show has been so successful to me anyway, because he never did. And then Tom Parada, who co-created the show but wrote the novel, apparently, said absolutely not. Like, laid down the law and was doing 12 Angry Men saying no. And then my buddy Patrick Somerville is credited in this as being, like, uh, brokering the piece. And the piece was, she can tell the story but not show it. It's amazing to me to see that moment. Because for me, the whole show—I've argued before, a finale can never invalidate a show— but it would have been, to my mind, the biggest possible betrayal of what I believed in in the show and what the show seemed to be about and what mattered to the show if they had shown it. It doesn't matter if it's a good idea or not, right? It doesn't matter if the guy who's doing all the interviews thought of it. And here we see how and why it happened and how close we came to, well, I don't want to say apocalypse, but that's fascinating. Yeah. The, the, behind, the inside baseball part of that is interesting. Um, last point. Sure. I know I've been going on, but I just, I'm going to miss this show sure. for the same reasons you said. Like, look what we get to talk about. Uh, it's an important show, even if it didn't get good ratings, even if people didn't watch it, but it's an important show to remind people of the one thing that TV still can't quite, doesn't quite know what to do with, even as it's being elevated to the essential um, 
storytelling mode or medium of our time, which is ambiguity and, as the song goes, letting the mystery be, right? Uh-huh. Like, two of, whenever people ask me, like, what's a, what's a great movie or what's a great movie ending, I always think of two movies that basically had the same ending, The Graduate and Michael Clayton, where the camera lingers just long enough for us it's to like, be like... It's like, what are we going to do next? What, what, yeah. what now? Yeah. Movies can exist in the what now or what just happened because then they end. TV shows have become, you know, and partly Damon, he personally isn't to blame for it, but lost in the phenomenon is answer every question. We got, you know, tell us things, give us more mystery, but then solve it and then solve it and give us, give us, give us. And The Leftovers used its power and money and prestige and privilege to have sci-fi elements and machines and mystery boxes and sex boats, but to force us to sit in the most uncomfortable part of the human psyche and show that TV can do that. And so I'm incredibly grateful to it, not just as an entertainment, but for elevating the medium to a point where maybe it can, it can exist in that place. And I look forward to the next show that can do that because we are entering an era where the shows that we love or that we celebrate are often about just throwing, throwing more quirk at it, throwing more surprises at it, shocking us, showing us things we've never seen before. Or telling us stories we already know. Like the the sort of Ryan Murphy kind of like here, it, oh right, or telling us history, right, yeah. or or looking backwards in a yeah. very which for as good as those shows are, they are it's very safe in that way. So, The Leftovers was never safe, and I think it was terrible, and then it was amazing, but it was never boring, and it was never safe. So, it's an impressive achievement. All right, that's a good way to go out. Uh, on Thursday, we are gonna tr- probably hit some peaks. Yeah, I loved last night. And I would love to finish up Master of None with you. Master of None. We owe the people Fargo, though. Thulis is having a moment, but we have so many hours to catch up on. Also, we need to have a um, a double agent in here to talk to me about season five of The Americans. Yeah, we'll we'll organize you to have a uh, some compromise. <laughs> oh, they they have that on me already. <laughs> yeah. All right. Until then. Great job, Bransky. Thanks again to A&E for sponsoring today's episode of The Watch. Leah Romini's Scientology and the Aftermath was A&E's breakout unscripted hit of 2016. The Hollywood Reporter called it engrossing. The New York Daily News said the stories it tells are shocking and rife with sobering revelations and accusations. Now, more ex-Scientologists are joining Leah to fight back. As Reality Blurred put it, that's the power of this kind of storytelling. Leah Romini, Scientology and the Aftermath, for your Emmy consideration. Today's episode of The Watch was also brought to you by Hotel Tonight. Things change, the weather changes, your mood changes. So why lock yourself into plans that might change? With Hotel Tonight, you don't have to because you'll get incredible deals on awesome hotels even at the last minute. Booking on Hotel Tonight gives you the freedom and the flexibility to play things by ear while knowing you'll score a great price and a great place to stay. Download the Hotel Tonight app to find seriously amazing deals now.